I bet you can hear me better now. If you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 17, John chapter 17. When Elizabeth and I were living in San Antonio, <clears throat> I grew to be quite the San Antonio Spurs fan. One of my friends uh, very graciously offered us, me and a friend, courtside tickets to watch the Spurs play. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'd grown up watching Tim Duncan play at Wake Forest, watching him play in the, in, throughout his college career, Tony Parker sitting next to him on the bench, Manu Ginobili. If you don't know who these names are, these are really good basketball players. And there's one thing to watch the game on television. There's one thing to cheer them on. There's another thing to be able to look over their shoulders and listen to what they're talking about. That's what I had a chance to do sitting courtside. That is the image that immediately came to mind when I was reading John chapter 17. Because we have an opportunity this morning to listen in to the very words of Jesus' prayer life. And I want you to understand and see that even though Jesus sees the cross just right around the corner, only hours away, his heart and his passion is preoccupied with prayer. Verses 1 to 5, he's focused on praying for himself, for the Father's glory, that he would manifest that glory. Verses 6 through 19, he is praying for those 11 disciples who one day will be 11 apostles, who will be sent out to plant churches and to write the New Testament. And now in our passage, verses 20 through 26, Jesus continues his prayers. And I want you to see what is on his heart. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Will you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we bow our heads and we bow our hearts before you. We are peering into a mystery. An unfathomable wealth and well of your grace and truth. Oh Lord, we need so much for you to send your spirit 
to open our hearts and our minds to understand and to grasp these mysteries for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. When we were living in Athens, Georgia, we were a little over an hour away from Six Flags. And uh, I had the opportunity on two separate occasions to be the chaperone for my kids' uh, field trip to Six Flags. It was a really difficult hardship. I had to really suffer a lot to go to Six Flags. Um, no, it was absolutely amazing. For those of you that like you know, amusement parks, that you like rides, this is, this is really fun for you. For those of you who hate roller coasters, not a good time. I loved going to Six Flags. I remember one time having the opportunity, I can't remember which kid it was, but we went and we got a chance to ride on Goliath. Goliath is this ride, it doesn't go upside down, but there's four people that are sitting in a row and you just go straight up and straight down and over and over again, you can feel your stomach sort of coming up. It takes your breath away. We love that. I love that at least. Why do we love amusement parks? I think there's something deep in us that we long to have our breath taken away. We long to be captivated by something. We long to have our imaginations quickened by something. To be enchanted. To be a kid again. To just enjoy the richness of an experience like that. We need to be enchanted. We need to have our eyes lifted off of the circumstances that we see around us and the emotions that we're feeling inside of us. We need to have our hearts captured by a vision bigger than ourselves and bigger than our moment. Which is why we need so much. There's no more applicable passage than John 17 for all of our souls this morning. Because we can tend to be cynics. We can tend to poke holes in everything. We can tend to deconstruct everything. But we see someone with so much vulnerability and so much humility and yet so much power stand up and pray these words. This is why we need Jesus' prayer. A prayer that is unfathomable. And so I want us to look at Jesus' prayer this morning from three different sides. First, I want us to see who Jesus prays for. I want you to notice the people Jesus prays for. Again, Jesus is only hours away from his betrayal, from his death, and he is praying for his people. I mean, let that, it wasn't pretend suffering. It wasn't like he had a God switch and he could say, well, now I don't have to experience pain and suffering and difficulty. He was fully God and fully man. He really suffered for us. And it was right around the corner, and he's focusing in on praying for his people. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that these only would be the 11 apostles that are sitting in front of him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Meaning the word of the apostles. The New Testament that the apostles will write. Jesus' deepest longing and passion is for the Christians to come. The Christians who will exist for all time, from all over the world, from every place. Not only those apostles, not only the Israelites, but all believers. We learn about this people even more specifically. Because these people are a people of promise. 
These are a people who had been the purchased people of God that the Father had given to him. This had been the mission of the Father all along to gather a people for himself to give to his Son. A promised people. I mean, imagine the night. This is, this is the night before his suffering, his betrayal. The image that I have is like Jesus is a runner coming into the final stretch of an arduous race. The finish line is right in front of him. He hasn't crossed the finish line yet, but it's, it's right there. Every breath in his lungs, every miracle, every word of Jesus' life was driving at the Father's mission to rescue a promised people. And here he's pouring out his heart emotively, passionately for these people. We've heard this before throughout John's gospel, right? Remember John 10, 16? And I have other sheep, Jesus says, that are not of this fold, meaning not just ethnically Jewish. But I must also bring them also, those outside this fold. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's not Israel and the church. There's one people of God, one family of God. But also this promise goes back even further. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. Listen to this promise. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And the ends of the earth your possession. Zechariah 2.11. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. And they shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. All of this is leading toward what eternity will be. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. This is the vision of eternity. That God will gather a people to himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the promised people that Jesus Christ is praying for only hours before his moment of suffering. This is Jesus' great heart desire to gather a people for himself from every corner of creation. From every side of the track. From the city and the county. From the poor and the rich. From all different races and ethnic people groups. Why? Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Even with the cross, just hours before him, Jesus prays to his father he loves, give me my heart's desire. This is what I long for, Father. A people who will, will be with us, the Trinity, forever. That's what I'm longing for. I can imagine Jesus saying, Father, throughout my race, I have run for them. I have obeyed perfectly. I have resisted temptation perfectly for them. Soon I will die for them and be raised for them so that they will be mine forever. That is what Jesus is praying for. So as we come in this morning, and many of you might be asking, does Jesus really care about me? Does he really know what I'm going through? On this night, at this moment, Jesus' heart and his desire is for you and for me and for the Christians in Ukraine, the Christians who are in China right now, the Christians that lived a thousand years ago, the Christians that might live 50 years or a thousand years from now. His heart's desire is that we might know that we're never alone, that he cares about you. 
He cares about me. He was praying for Grace Presbyterian Church. Little old us. He cares. I want us to see the people. But secondly, we need to see the petition. Not just the who, but the what. I want you to look at the petition of Jesus' prayer. Look what jumps off the page. Verse 21. That they may all be one. That they may be one even as we are one. Verse 22. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. If Jesus says something once, we probably should listen. If Jesus says something twice, we should stop exactly what we're doing and pay attention. If Jesus says the same thing three times in three verses, we should never forget it. Jesus' petition is that his church from every tongue, tribe, and nation from all time might be one. He is asking his father for this. He is longing for this. Unity is a passion for Jesus. And yet, isn't it so confusing? Think about the multiple generations of people trying to get their heads and their hearts and their arms around what unity is. I'm not going to get into that and throw stones at what people have tried to do with well-meaning intentions. That's not what I'm here to do. But I think it's fair to say what unity is not. I don't think Jesus has organization in mind. It's not, let's get organized, let's get the plan, let's get the flow chart, let's get rid of all the denominations. We got one place, one sort of mega church. We just need to get organized. That'll create unity. I think over 2,000 years of church history has shown that really hasn't panned out too well. Look no further than the uh, map that I give all the people in the intro to grace class of just the American Presbyterian church and how it's splintered all over the place. Unity is not forged in organization. Here, Jesus prays for organic unity, not organizational unity. Not a building, but a bond of unity. But what is the bond? We actually have an answer here in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. Verse 24, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is the bond of brotherhood and sisterhood? What is the bond of unity that you share with Christians from a thousand years ago? The love that the Father has for the Son. That is the bond of our unity. Gospel unity does not happen because of a committee or a campaign. We have unity with other believers because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Okay, that's great, Justin. That sounds really interesting and maybe that's biblical. But how? How does Jesus share this unity with his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation? Think about what we've talked about over these last few weeks. Remember in John 14, I talked about the Holy Spirit. And then John 15 was all about abiding, the vine and the branch. John Pearson preached last week on John 16, again on the Holy Spirit. What do you think Jesus wants us to get? The Holy Spirit is the key. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always dwelt together in perfect unity. Perfect unity, oneness, and perfect diversity. That same eternal Holy Spirit now indwells Every single Christian believer from all time around the world right now. 
Think about that intimate bond that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoys and experiences for all of eternity. We now have that because of the work of Christ, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just think about this. How many different Christians are in this room right now? I don't know. 150 to 200, somewhere in that window? All of us are very diverse. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different ages, different um, ideas on things, different um, familiarities with Christianity and the Bible. How many different Holy Spirits do we have? We have one Spirit, and that's just in this room. I mean, let that hit you. That is, my mind, I can't understand that. This is the mystery of the Trinity that our hearts are supposed to um, be captured by, for our imaginations to be shaped by, that the church is one, one Father, one Savior, one Spirit, making His home in every believer. And Jesus is praying that His church would be one and exhibit that oneness as well. Well, what does that mean? Well, we get a clue early on in the passage where he's talking about clinging to the word, that apostolic gospel. Okay, so what does that mean, Justin? Do we know the difference between something that is an essential truth and an important truth? Do you know the difference? Do I know the difference between an essential truth and an important truth? I believe the Bible teaches Covenant baptism. I believe that it's all over the scriptures. Covenant baptism did not die on the cross for my sins. It is important. It is not essential. I believe the Bible teaches what's called Calvinism or uh, sovereign grace or reformed theology. I know some of you don't believe that and we're really glad that you're here. I really believe the Bible teaches that and I would love to talk with you about it. Reformed theology did not pay for my sins. John Calvin didn't pay for anyone's sins. There are some things that are essential, and there are some things that are important. And that is important as we're thinking about unity. Unity is not giving up your distinctives. It is recognizing the difference between essentials and things that are important. But I think a second identifier is not only this apostolic grounding in truth, but also self Sacrificial love. Remember John 13? All about washing one another's feet, even the feet of your betrayer. At our Monday, Thursday service, the whole focus is on service and sacrifice and the love of Christ. A willingness to lay down your life for one another, even in the face of differences, is a real mark of unity in Christ. I have the privilege on a monthly basis of gathering together a very small group of uh, brothers in Christ who are pastors at some of the local churches. It's an informal group, um, and we are all about the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, discipleship. And I'm telling you, when I leave that meeting, it's one hour a month. I leave and I'm like, this is home. This is what glory is going to be like. Now, these churches have different ideas on very important, I would argue, doctrinal distinctives. 
We have different ideas about government, church government and different ideas about the Old and New Testament, different ideas, I would say, philosophies of ministry and what happens on a Sunday morning. But none of that stuff divides our fellowship. There is something so humbling, friends, to have one of the other pastors that's meeting right now, right across town, to physically put his hand on my shoulder and to pray for Elizabeth and John Huss and Gardner and Eliza Jane by name. And to pray for our elders who are being trained right now and our deacons by name. And to pray that Grace Presbyterian Church might grow to impact Rockbridge County for God's glory. To have another pastor pray that for you. That is the kind of unity that I think gives a smile on our face and pleases the Lord. It's guarding against elevating our preferences and our convictions to the point of dividing fellowship. Oh, that we might be and continue to be a church for God's glory that confounds our community. So that when you bring your friends and family to church on Easter and they walk in here and they know people from Rockbridge County, they're like, what is he doing? What is she doing here? He's from VMI. She's from Washington and Lee. He's from the county. She's from the, she's from the city. Oh, I know about his background. Oh, I know her. And you're thinking, what in the world do we have in common with one another? All of our preferences and our sensibilities and ideas on all of those things melt away when we gather together in the unity that we have in the triune God. That is what Jesus is talking about. Does Jesus really care about me? That's the big question we're asking. He is sharing his eternal love the oneness of God in the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overflowing and binding himself to his people, his one church. Okay, Justin, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So there's a people of God, and it's fulfilling this Old Testament promise. And I get it. Jesus is praying about uh, this petition. He really wants all of the Christians from around the world to be united under the Godhead. But what's really behind the prayer? Why is Jesus praying this? Thirdly, lastly, and very briefly, the purpose of Jesus's prayer. Why? Verse 23, Jesus is praying for us this morning so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, excuse me, love them even as you loved me. Visible unity in Christ has a greater vision than just, look at me, look how unified we are. The vision is a stimulus for evangelism. Is that when your friends and family look and see, they, yeah, they don't have a whole lot in common, but they have the only thing that matters, which is the finished work of Christ. That people are looking at our lives, might they look at us and say, there's something about them that is different. There's a love, a unity, a humility, an affection for one another I've never experienced. I've never seen two adult men ask another person to forgive them. What is going on over there in that church? I've never seen that kind of vulnerability, that kind of honesty, that, that, un, that willingness to sort of not live for their own reputations. This is what happens as we together not only in this church, but link arms with like-minded, gospel-centered churches that have a heart to see Jesus transform Rockbridge County for God's glory. This is what happens. People start looking and they're like, huh, what got into those people? There's something different about them. 
As you and your friends and family are drawn in, you realize it's not the something that binds them, but it's a someone. And that someone even drives us as Christians to be able to say, hey, you know what? For a lot of times, the church has done an awful job of giving a compelling picture of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And for that, I'm really sorry. The church of Jesus Christ historically has not always been loving and welcome and patient with those who are strugglers and sufferers. And you know what? I'm really sorry. That's not okay. What would, what would get into us to be able to have that kind of boldness, that kind of humility, to, to not be defensive and not, not to be on guard, but to say, you know what, though? That's why Jesus had to come. None of us have our acts together. All of us are in desperate need of Christ. I am convinced as we go about our weeks into whatever the Lord is calling you to do, rubbing shoulders with people on the college campus, the high schools, the middle schools, wherever you are, as you start loving and serving people, only as a response of the gratitude and grace that you've received from Christ, it will change your family. It'll change your marriage. It will change this community. Not so that we can say, hey, we're awesome. No. Because we can say it's all about Jesus. Look what he has done. There's no structures, no organization to put this together. Only the triune God who is at work. And he's pleased to use broken and weak people like us. Who lose hope. Who lose perspective. Who don't always know what to say at the right time. Who find it hard to love people that are hard to love. That's why Jesus had to come, friends. As we're kind of coming in for a landing here and closing, you might notice in your ESV Bible or NIV, I don't, I don't know what, what scriptures you brought with you, some of you might have a title that says the High Priestly Prayer. Have you all ever noticed that? John 17, the High Priestly Prayer. Why is that in there? Why did some person write the High Priestly Prayer? The word high priest is never mentioned in John 17. What's the point? Well, what's fascinating about the high priest is the high priest in the Old Testament was the one representative for God's people who could come into God's presence one day a year and make a sacrifice and atonement to pay for the sin of God's people. And what I find fascinating is this high priest one day a year, he would wear very specific garments. And on each of his shoulders inscribed on stones would be the specific names of the 12 tribes of Israel. On his chest, near his heart, inscribed on very specific stones, and God gave very specific instructions, were the 12 tribes of Israel. Wearing these garments, that high priest would go and make intercession and prayers and sacrifice for his people. In a very real sense, friends, as Jesus is praying here, Jesus is carrying you on his shoulders. He is carrying your burdens before the Father by name. He is carrying you close to his heart, bringing you before the Father. Let that image Get, like, get a hold of you. Does God really care about me? He does. He lived your life. He stood every test. 
that we will ever face and we fall on our face. I will fall on my face before I step foot on that ground over there. He fulfilled everything. He died in our place. And he loves us and he is dead set on spending eternity with you and with me forever. And not just us, not people that look like us and talk like us and have our cultural backgrounds, but every tongue, tribe, and nation for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, for our Baptist brothers and sisters, our Anglican brothers and sisters. You get the idea. I could keep going down the list, right? One body, one baptism, one church of Jesus Christ. So how do we respond to this, Justin? I think some of us this week might need to carve out time just to slow down and allow our hearts to be enchanted by the unity in the Trinity. There's simply no shortcut. We just have to slow down and let our hearts and our minds get a hold of that and drive us to worship. I think for others of us, we need to meditate and get our minds around the reality that you are on Jesus's heart. I know you don't feel it, but the truth is you are and you have always been on the heart of Jesus Christ. And as Luther says, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Sometimes we have to beat it in our own heads. And maybe we need a friend or a family member to help beat that truth into our heads. You are on the heart of God and we didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all his grace. And thirdly and lastly, I think an application for some of us, who are you going to move toward this week? How are you going to fight against sectarianism and dividing fellowship from people that have different ideas on important matters, but you are together on the essentials? How might we, as we go out into this community, not just as a church and Grace Presbyterian on the website, but you as a member of God's body, go out into this community with your relationships. Those are the three applications for us to consider. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would seal those things into our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this word of truth that is unfathomable. It is so rich. It is so deep. And I just pray that wherever we are this morning, that there was something that was helpful and encouraging that you might lift our gaze to you. In Jesus' name, amen.